we're back for another episode of Thrill of It All. And I'm here with Bobby Hundreds. And um, how, did your, uh, how did you embrace the name Bobby Hundreds? After, obviously your name's Bobby Kim, right? Yes, uh, my real name's Bobby Kim. And, um, or how did I, why did I even adopt that last name? Yeah, why did you adopt that last name? Um, when I was growing up, I was such a big fan of the punk scene and the hardcore scene and uh, I just thought it was so cool the guys in the bands that would adopt like seven seconds actually just broke up but like Kevin seconds you know or like the Ramones right like really which is you know everyone just adopts the last name whether it's their actual name or not and um, I, I was never good at I tried playing instruments but I didn't really have access to the right instruments and I and I wasn't very musically inclined so I was like not gonna be a rock star I'm not gonna be in a band but my brand is kind of like modeled after a band you know the way that we established it and so from the get it was if you're a part of this company if you're part of this brand we're gonna treat it like a brand uh, we're gonna treat it like a band we're gonna treat it like a family and you can adopt the last name. Whether if you're on staff or you're a fan, if you adopt the last name, we'll feel more like a family. That's cool, I like it. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the, the beginning. Where, where were you born? So I was born in uh, Westminster, Maryland. And I lived there only for a couple of years. So I don't really remember it and I can't really claim it, but it, right outside of Baltimore. My parents before that had lived in Sulphur, Oklahoma. They moved to Maryland. Um, this was right after uh, an immigration act passed in the late 60s, so in the 70s. And for the first time, America was allowing Asian immigrants to come over. Up until that point, not to get too much into history, but up until that point, it was just European immigrants were really allowed to come over. And so you had this influx of Asian immigrants, and they were kind of being the government was kind of placing them in different areas just so that they wouldn't congregate and form communities, which sounds like totally fucked up, but it was like a real thing. My parents ended up moving from Sulphur into Virginia, and then we were in Westminster in Maryland and Baltimore, and then uh, we moved to Southern California. That's like where they wanted to end up, and so um, then it was Southern California, it was Fountain Valley, and really it was Riverside. Like, I grew up in Riverside, California. Uh, first in Rubido and like the Cadir Harupa area and then um, eventually we moved into the Orange Crest slash Canyon Crest area of Riverside if anyone knows where that is. Cool. Yeah. What was what was your childhood like? Um, it's I've been writing this book right so I'm writing a, a business memoir right now and it's supposed to come out by the end of the year and uh, so I've had a lot of time to kind of dig through a lot of all this and um, I'm even remembering and, and recollecting things that I'd forgotten about growing up. Um, but I think what, what I came, a big takeaway I took from writing over the last year was how much I was searching for a community and I, and I never felt like I really necessarily belonged anywhere. I, um, being a minority, right, in my town, in my neighborhood, in my school, uh, not a lot of kids who looked like me, and so already I felt a little displaced. Then I was a middle child of three boys, and so, you know, I'm the Jan Brady, you know, never could get enough attention. And then as a, we were just talking about this kind of before we started filming, but, you know, as a dude, I didn't feel like the guy, you know, like I was not 
very athletically inclined. I was not good at sports and I really wasn't good at team sports. Um, I liked being, uh, I liked competing, but I didn't like um, just working with a bunch of people. I didn't know how to do that. And I still don't, admittedly. It's, it's funny that I'm a boss and I'm a manager and I have a company because I'm just not good at working in a team. I'm very, I'm actually by default uh, very introverted as a person and very independent and individualized. And so it was just hard for me to find place amongst like other guys growing up, um, guys who look like me, like if there were any Asian Americans I ran into, they were not into the things I was into. Um, I never got recruited for teams. I always got picked last for sports. And then I was attracted to art and design and uh, music, obviously. And so like I got really into punk and hardcore. And there just wasn't, these weren't popular things. Like to be attracted to skateboarding in the very early 90s, and it was a very awkward time in skateboarding, it was, it was, I, it, I almost did it because it was fringe and because I didn't, I was a square peg everywhere else. And it's not like I fit into skateboarding, but skateboarding was all the other square pegs. And I, I always felt like I was an octagon peg. I had like too many sides yeah. to me. Like I was into musicals and then and literature. And then I was into graffiti and drugs. Like just this, this crazy diverse all over the place, like had no focus. I was kind of good at school, but very lazy. Like just school was not challenging or interesting to me. I, I was popular and that I was friends with everyone, the jocks, the, 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 the athletes, the jocks, the preps, the cheerleaders, like I would date cheerleaders, but then I dressed super crazy and weird. And so skateboarding was a place where I found, for the first time I found identity and community. And I, and it's, it's, I always say that the coolest thing in the world is skateboarding and then secondarily it's music. But everything cool begins with skateboarding. And really for me, it was not just in terms of like culture that I found, but really community, identity, and I felt like I belonged somewhere. I don't know if that helps explain a little bit of where I, I came up. I think it totally up. does. Because yeah. you know, some of those things I knew and some of them I didn't know. And I think it's, it's really cool to get that texture. But your parents, you know, being immigrants, did they put academic pressure on you and your brothers? Yeah, I'm, I'm second generation Korean American. So um, again, like my parents did not move to this country for me to be an artist, right? I always say like, um, to be an, uh, drawn to the arts as an Asian American kid is like, maybe I think a close comparison for white kids to understand is if you told your parents you want to be a race car driver. Yeah. It's like the scariest thing in the world to them. Yeah. They're like, whoa, like we just immigrated, we sacrificed everything to come to this country, which is very daunting and scary. Um, it's a big country, it's, it's different language, different culture. And then we're raising you in this zone of like, you know, when I was growing up, it was MTV and, um, you know, like pop culture, pop culture and drugs and it's scary. And then you want to be an artist like no one makes it in the arts in other countries, you know, in, in the countries that these immigrants came from. It's like, no, like there's no way to make a living doing that. And, you know, in many ways they were right. If I think if I had followed the path of being a traditional artist, 
I don't know if I necessarily would have made it if it weren't for what eventually happened by the mid-90s, which was the internet. And the internet really, for me, helped congeal and connect the dots between all these interests that I had that I was always told, you'll never, make, you'll never have a future doing any of it. I'm into clothes and brands. Well, everyone who runs a company isn't like you. You know, they're like pro surfers or they, they came from Australia and these have these massive companies like, um, you're nothing like that. You know, you're like a brown kid from Riverside. You have no connections in the industry. You have no experience. Uh, I never went to art school. My parents didn't promote my art. So how could I really become a big fashion designer? Um, I want to be a writer. Uh, but I didn't have any formal training, you know, I went to public schools, I'm still a big public school advocate, but I just um, wasn't properly equipped to write and really I wanted to be an artist. I always considered myself and, and fast, fantasized about this life of being this artist, you know, I, I especially by the late 90s, I was such a big fan of Barry McGee and Cause and the Gons and, and, and these artists that I wanted to do that, but I didn't have any formal training. And so, and, and then uh, ancillary to that is just all the cultural stuff, right? Hardcore skateboarding. I'm never going to be a skater, like a pro skater. I'm not good enough. Um, I'm, I'm never, I can't play an instrument. So how can I make a living doing any of these things? Like maybe my parents are right, but still I, I revolted against that idea. Like it wasn't good enough for me. I wasn't satisfied with it. And then the internet happened and for the first time I could put all those things in one funnel. Like I had one silo of, hey, I can go on a blog, <laughs> which is crazy. Like kids today don't even know what blogs are. There, I was talking to a kid the other day who's been a fan of ours for such a long time. And I was like, oh, remember when I had my blog? And he's just like, you used to have a blog? And I'm like, yeah, like the first 10 years of this company were established on me writing this blog every day. But in 1999, when Blogger first launched, I was like, hey, this is like an electronic zine. Like I used yeah. to run zines. And I have such a broader audience. And it's faster too. And digital cameras were starting to come around. So I turned in my film camera and got a digital camera. And everything just started moving a lot faster. And I could storytell. And then I could connect all these different po touch points in my life. Here's my art. Here's my writing. Here's my photography. I love hardcore because of this. Listen to this album. Here's a skate video that I found so cool. And for the first time I was like, I think I can make a living doing this because if I attach it to merchandise, which is what the brand was, the hundreds brand, you know, um, then we can actually sell something against it. I saw in an interview that after high school you moved to Japan. Yeah, well after, after college. Oh, okay. I moved to Japan for my girlfriend, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she moved to Japan to teach English. Right. She didn't really know what she was doing, going to do with her life. I really didn't know. But you went to college. I went to college. How many years did you go to college? I did four years at UC, UC San Diego. And then she moved to Japan when we graduated. And, uh, and I was still, I moved to LA. And I, I actually thought I was going to go into acting or some kind of entertainment. I'd done a lot of theater in, in, in college. And when I was in LA, I was freelance writing for magazines still, because I had done a stint in, uh, while I was at UC San Diego, the last two years I worked at Transworld. I started off being an intern at a magazine that's now defunct called Warp, 
and then it turned into, we turned it into a magazine called Stance Magazine. And Stance then became defunct. Um, but after I left UC San Diego, I was like, I think I, I still want to write. I really enjoy the process of writing. And, and so I was freelancing, but then 9-11 happened and the publishing industry just died. Kind of like what's, already, what's happened in the last few years here. And so I moved to Japan. And um, I spent uh, a couple months off and on flying back and forth to, J to Japan, writing for a lot of Japanese magazines, writing for American magazines about what was going on in Japanese culture. And there was this really, really cool thing happening at the time, which was streetwear. And it was this growing sneaker culture, streetwear thing, uh, largely spearheaded, spearheaded by a bathing ape. Um, Supreme was obviously cool, but still very skate out of New York, and there was a lot of Japanese influence with Supreme, but uh, what Nigo was doing with Bape was so fascinating, treating t-shirts as art pieces, and these are $100 t-shirts, and they're in these plexiglass cases that you look at, you know, look through like they were pieces of art. Um, and lineups out the door every day and I would walk by these stores and be like, what is going on here? That period of like the first year after college for me, which was like 2001, it was like right after 9-11, I learned so much about streetwear and I got so into it. And probably the biggest part of it all was none of it had penetrated the States, yeah. right? Like outside of LA, New York and SF, like no one knew what this stuff was. So when I would wear like a big ape face and I had a Supreme box cap on and you would walk around town and if one guy knew like what was up, you, you would get the nod and it was like this secret society kind of conduct that you kind of like give each other the little nod and that meant more to me than how much the stuff cost. Um, it meant more to me than like everything. It was, it was like instant credibility. You know, if you saw someone wearing one of those brands at the time, it was just like, that guy probably does something really cool. And you were 99% right. He was a filmmaker or he was starting a company or he was a writer or he was just cool, like he got it. Um, and so that was the appeal to me at the time. That's cool. I mean, I can relate to that secret society or that identification with someone that's into something that you're into because skateboarding in the south like I grew up in the southern United States yeah and it was very sparse you know there was like one to two kids at my high school 1400 or something that skated two kids <laughs> you know so if you saw someone wearing a skate shirt like in public or something it was just like at the mall you were like beelining it to yeah. go talk to that dude yeah you know? it was more than just a head nod I, I know that's an extreme scenario compared to you know seeing someone in LA and you no. you're, you're into streetwear but no. I mean I, I get I get that acknowledgement and and you know how that works but you fell in love with streetwear and the culture of you know sneakers and these brands but then you came back and went to law school yeah so because of 9-11 the work was really drying up and I was getting work out in the Japan. Free, freelance work. Freelance work, yeah. sorry. Just writing in general, editorial, uh, freelance photography, just print in general was, was really hard. And I'm not really built for freelance. I've learned over the years, I'm not very disciplined. And you know, I started getting into this really poor lifestyle of like waking up at two in the afternoon and working a little bit here and there. And I was just like, I'm kind of like losing myself. And so at that time, um, 
partially to appease my parents, right? Hey, I'm gonna go to law school. Like, this is what you've always wanted. They want me to go to law school or med school. I'm like, I wanna go to law school. There is partially that. There is partially this idea of, I can have like a normal, stable job, a nine to five job. This is how I had imagined it in my head, where I can be a lawyer and make enough money. And then from 5 p.m. on till like, let's say two or three in the morning, I can work on my art. Like what I really want to do. Because I had always told myself, because every authority figure in my life up until that point, not just my parents, but teachers, big brothers, everyone was always just like, you're not gonna, you can't really make a living doing creative work. And so I had never given myself permission to even think that way. And so it was always like, I'll do it for fun. I'll do it for fun. I need a normal job and then I can do this stuff for fun. I'll do a normal job and I'll do this stuff for fun. And I carried that all the way into my first summer after my first year of law school. And I was like, hey, look, I have this internship. I'm working at the courthouse, but I'm still going to like start this project, this t-shirt project slash blog thing. And I'm just going to do it for fun. And it wasn't until I met Ben, my partner, in my first year. And he said, hey, what are you doing this summer? And I said, um, well, I have this internship for this judge. Like, I'm doing law school stuff. But for fun, I'm, I'm going to do this, like, t-shirt blog thing. And he was like, well, look, I, I want to do something that makes some money. Like, I want to start, like, some kind of business. And I was just like, oh. I was like, I don't really know how to make money doing what I do. And he's like, I, I know how to make money doing that. And it was like the first time that I was like, oh, I can make money making stuff and like drawing pictures. And he's just like, yeah, I think I could sell you t-shirts. He's like, I've sold clothes before at Nordstrom's or something like that. Like, it's not a no problem. And so that's how the project happened. It really was me never considering how do I make money doing this? How do I make money doing this? And for me to meet Ben to be like, you can make money doing this. Potentially, you never have to be a lawyer if you don't want that I said, oh, maybe we can do this together. And it's funny, like that mentality, I've never departed from. I've still, everything we do with this company, I'm not motivated by money, which is probably why we've lasted as long as we have, and probably why I haven't gotten so down on myself when I don't hit targets or if we have a bad sales year, because none of it is motivated by how much money I make. I love money. Like, money's great. You know, money pays the bills. I have a normal-sized house. I have two cars for my wife and I. My kids go to public school. That's it. We really don't buy stuff. We take one vacation a year. That's it. Wow. And, like, that's all I need. Like, that's... I'm very happy. Like, I don't think I can get happier than I am now. Actually, I don't get happier. I surf a few mornings a week. I don't get happier than I do when I'm on a surfboard. I'm sitting out in the ocean. I have a board, which is, okay, let's say it's 600 bucks, okay? The surfboard. That's the happiest you'll ever find me in my life. Is either that or when I'm with my kids. That's free. The board costs 600 bucks. So then once I realized this is all I really need. Everything else on top of that is just extra. It's just more stuff to worry about, more overhead, more stuff that people can take away from me or that I can lose or get robbed of, um, like physically robbed or like legally robbed or like something that can taken away from me. So I've never been, taking it back to, I've never been motivated by money for this company. It's been only motivated by, I just want to make stuff. If more money means that I can make bigger and better things, then I want more money for the company. Like if 
I want to make these pants, but oh, we can't meet the minimums. Then I need more money because I want to make the pants. But as soon as we make the pants, I'm like, I'm good. But I don't, I personally don't need more money. Like everyone's like, yeah, but what if you get bought out for, you know, $100 million, $500 million. And I'm like, you know where, you know where I would be tomorrow? I'd be right back here. So, okay, I bought a yacht. No one's going to be using the yacht because I don't get happier than when I get to come to work, make stuff and sit on my surfboard. So like, I don't, maybe for other people, I think their happiness does come from money and from financial gain and having the yacht and that's like their end goal. Like I want to be on a yacht and I want to drive a Ferrari. But, um, you know, I drove a RAV4 all the way up until a few years ago until like Ben told me, hey, can you like change your car? Because it's kind of like a morale bummer <laughs> for like everyone else. Like, they're driving better cars than the boss. Like my bumper is falling off, I have no glove compartment. Like one of the rims is off and I'm just like, it just gets me from point A to point, like who cares? Did you get a new car? Got a new car. I got an X5. I have an X5. It's like cool enough dad car. Um, as the hundreds started to get big, did you ever, were you ever concerned that it was going to get too big? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's still a concern. It's still something that I wrestle with constantly because my understanding of cool brands growing up was always established around this idea of being cult and niche. And uh, I was into hardcore because hardcore will never make it on the radio, right? There's no way it can get big by its DNA. But I think what I've also accepted over the years is that this brand was never meant to be a secret. I never wanted to keep it in a way where it was just a selfish project. If I wanted to do that, uh, I could have just stayed home. You know, I always tell people that I'm like, as soon as you start a brand, you start making compromises because you start sharing it with other people. If you want to just make art for yourself, just do it in your kitchen. But if you start selling, the moment you sell a t-shirt, it's not yours anymore. They can do whatever they want with that brand. I see kids tattooing our logo on themselves. They'll put it on their arms and their heads and their necks and stuff like that. And everyone's like, how do you feel about that? I'm like, that's their brand too. Like they paid for it. So I have to share it with them. And so it was never a secret. It was never just my thing. And as soon as I learned that and realized, wait, I want as many people to know about this as possible in a way that it still upholds some type of integrity. And as, as long as I still feel connected to the product, I'm okay with that. I only use the brand to meet as many people as possible. I can't talk to like, right now in my DMs, I get maybe like 20 questions a day from 20 different kids. I can't answer them all. I wish I could. I actually wish I could meet the thousands and millions of kids who've supported us over the years. Like I wish I could meet all of them. Like not just to say thank you, but like tell me your story. Tell me what you're into. Tell me about the comic book you're reading on the bed. Like I want to know all that stuff. I physically and logistically can't do that. So my way of meeting everybody is by selling them my t-shirt. <laughs> like there's a connection, you know, like we have some kind of exchange there. Um, as many people know about the brand as possible, then I feel like I can have as much dialogue with as many people as possible, which is really, really at the end of the day is me just trying to include as many people within my community as possible. Like how many people can I wrap this community around? Not for them just to meet me, but to meet each other through our brand. So it's a, <clears throat> it's a hard one, you know, like watching this brand, it's 15 years 
uh, this year. And I, I, we just had a meeting yesterday with Jarrett, um, who used to run and, and own Raucous Records. And there's a lot of parallels to that, because Raucous was this underground hip-hop label. And he, even he was saying, he's just like, God, you guys have been around for 15 years. What business do you have being a streetwear brand for 15 years? Like, how could you possibly be culturally relevant to a 12-year-old kid compared to, like, a 16-year-old kid's brand right now? You know, why, like, how could you still be in the space? I'm like, I know, isn't it crazy? Like, I'm so lucky to be afforded the time that kids will even consider me to speak to them right now. But I also feel like I bring a different kind of value to them. I bring a different kind of product, number one, that um, we've worked on for 15 years to get right. But also, I've gained so much insight and so much storytelling and so much experience in that 15 years that I feel like kids really want these days. I think everything, everything is so new and it's all hype and like whatever is right now the hottest thing that just came out the gate. Like everyone want, wants what's next, especially in streetwear. What's the next brand I need to wear? Like every season it's like, these are the five brands you should wear, right? Hypebeast and Heist and Bidey. This is the coolest brands this season. And because everything's moving so fast and everything is so fleeting and, and, and temporary, I think there is also this desire for consumers to latch on to things that have stories and longevity like zero, like the hundreds, because they're like, wait, I need something to hold on to for a second. Something that is foundational, is an anchor, has weathered through all this stuff before, and I know that in 15 years, this will still be around and the hundreds will still be around. All these other brands come and go, but what's the thing that I can hold on to forever, you know? And for, for us, that's what I try to be. I just want to be the brand that's just around forever. I don't need to be first place. I like being like third or fourth place constantly. And just like, just let me be here. Like, no one notices I'm still in the room cool. Like, I'm just like in the conversation, you know? But just like putting my head down, doing my work. I look up every now and then, I'm like, oh, I'm, still, I'm the only one left, again, right? Like, how many generations have I done this now where we're lumped in, we're sitting on the shelf in a store with like six other brands oh, these are the brands you're competing against. And then like five years later, I look up and that's another five brands, you know? And it just keeps happening over and over. And I'm just like minding my business, I do my work. And um, you have to believe, or I, 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 I believe that the kids constantly, and not just kids, but the consumers who grow with us over time, they want that. They need like an, a cornerstone. They need a rock to hold on to especially in a market that just moves so fast. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think skateboarding is very similar, and I think that the shop owners are in a similar place, and I'd imagine that a lot of the streetwear buyers would be people that have been influenced by your brand over the times, yeah. you know, over the last 15 years, and they could continuously relate, and there's a place in their heart for your brand. Yeah. You know, and I could see how that would contribute to longevity. Um, you know, as I, as I kind of asked the question, um, I, I obviously have my own, you know, take on it because, you know, Zero has been around a little over 20 years and I, I see it. There's, there's, um, you know, a lot of wisdom and, you know, mm. you've learned a lot over the years, but then, you know, something that I've had to like recognize is, is that we have to keep reinventing ourselves. And as I get older, you know, and I have kids and I don't, you know, I don't directly like relate to what kids are into nowadays, you know what I mean? Like, how, how do you, do, do you see that that's necessary for the hundreds too to reinvent yourself 
and especially you being the creative lead of this company. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? Living in the suburbs with a family. Yeah. Yeah. Driving an X5. And yeah. just... I know. Um, I just turned 38. Um, so that was pretty sobering. And um, I, uh, when I was 30, when I remember, I remember when I turned like, in my early 30s, I had a hard time with this because um, Seth uh, Gertzberg, who founded Echo, was telling me, he's just like, what, you know, you're old. And we had this meeting and he kind of drummed up the, these ideas in my head of I'm irrelevant because of age and, and kids just want young stuff from young designers. And um, I think that was an untruth, you know, when I look back on it now, because um, I think kids are attracted to the violent and whimsy of young designers and how erratic that goes. But they are also, like when I was a kid, like I liked older men and women that were making music a certain way. I don't know, it just felt different. I don't think it's just limited to age. I think as far as experiences go, I have so much more. Okay, this is the best way for me to answer that. I toured the world making the streetwear documentary a couple years ago. And everyone I went to, I said, and this kind of ties back into built, your built question. Built to fail? Built to fail. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to your question about getting bigger. And um, one of the questions that I asked everybody, which actually didn't make it really in the edit of the film, was can a brand stay authentic the bigger it gets? Like, if you turn into this big corporate brand, are you still authentic? Are you still core? And um, everyone had the expected responses to that, especially in streetwear. Like, no, you lose a little bit of this, you lose that, it's not the same. And I sat down with this designer in Korea, and his name is Chano. He, he runs a brand called Lifeful. They've been around now for 15 years, same as us. And he said, of course, you're more, you're, he said, you're not only authentic, you're more authentic. And I said, why is that? And he's like, because there's more of you in the brand. He's like, now that's 10 years of your life. Now that's 15 years of, 15 years that you, of your life poured into this brand. Like, isn't that more you than it's ever been before? And I'm like, yeah, I'm getting to a point where the hundreds is gonna be around for half of my life. Like, that's gonna happen within the next few years. Like, that's a crazy feeling where half of who I am is really in the, in the brand. And like, my DNA and the brand's DNA are the same. My, my life experiences are interwoven with the life experiences of the hundreds. Something a kid tells me today, like whether I, they love me or they hate me, like that sticks with me and shapes something that I do later. Like it's all become one and the same. So, um, you know, in terms of adaptation and, in, and evolving, I w used to be more concerned about that years ago of like, well, we gotta do projects like, we're doing another Garfield project. Do kids even care about Garfield anymore? Like, wasn't that an 80s, 90s thing? But really, I think what the kids care more about, like our core audience that I know of, they care more about, like, me. Like, they care more about Ben. They care more, more about, like, Patrick, our creative director, who's been with us for, like, 10 years. They know, like, Patrick's mind. You know, they know, like, the faces of the hundreds, the guys that work in the store and the girls who work in the stores. Like, they know those people, and they want to support those people and they grow along with those people. So whatever's relevant to me right now, like, again, I was talking about like musicals and theater earlier, like we're doing an Andrew Lloyd Webber project this year. And it's not relevant. 
Like I don't know what that. I don't know who that Andrew is. Lloyd Webber made like Phantom of the Opera, um, Cats, like big musicals, right? Jesus Christ Superstar. Those all have great uh, graphics, though. Great graphics. Yeah. Great stories and emotions, and like really, really interesting narratives behind them. And so, but they mean something to me that I will share with the audience as far as like why we're doing this project. And it might not be relevant right now in culture to be doing projects like that. Like Lil Uzi Vert might not be like promoting Phantom of the Opera. Like so. Might though. Maybe, yeah. might. Yeah. But because I share it in a way that it relates to me and it's relevant yeah. to me, it becomes relevant to our customer. And I really do just care about our customer. I like evangelizing our brand to a greater audience. Like I want as many people to come in as possible. But if we just have the same customer base for the rest of our lives, like I'm good with that. I think we, as business owners, we have a responsibility. Um, as brand runners, business owners, creators, we have a responsibility to be mindful of how much do we really need? Yeah. How much do we really need to give the world? There's so much waste, right? Like there's enough t-shirt brands, there's enough designs, right? Like. Do we really need to be shoving more and more stuff into people's closets? Like, I don't know about your closet. My closet, I don't know how much stuff I dump out and give give away. Charity, Goodwill, like, send it across seas. And like the next month, it's like I mean, partially because I own a clothing company and all my friends own clothing companies and they send me stuff. But really, do I need this many shoes? Like, I just dumped like 100 pairs of shoes because I only wear these Vans, Converse, a pair of Jordan 5s, and Adidas Boost. Like I have four pairs of shoes, that's all I wear. But I just, they're making so many more, more shoes. Like at what point do you consider, do we really have to do that? You know, like is anyone just stopping to think for a moment, like do you need to have the three Ferraris? Do you, how many billions do you really need? Do you need, how many employees do you really need? Yeah. You know, like there, we have a responsibility. There's like a morality to what we do as business owners to consider that stuff. And again, like I'm not against money. Like I'm capitalist all the way. Make your money, make your place on this earth, be heard. But um, at, at the sake, you have to start considering at the sake of what? Yeah. Like who are you hurting? Who are you taking yeah, away every, from? Everything comes at a cost. Everything comes at a cost. And like for me, I'm always trying to find that balance. I haven't hit it yet. Like. I still think I can make a little bit more money here. I think I can make a few more products there. But, you know, I'm the older I get, I'm realizing, oh my God, I have to be, I'm going to have to reckon for a lot of this stuff over my life. And so um, just being mindful of that, if anything. Yeah, I think that's good. Backing up a little bit, I follow you on social and a lot of times I see posts about human or civil rights. Do you feel a moral obligation? to represent people that are oppressed? Yeah, I, it's, I don't know if I feel a moral obligation, but it's a very visceral thing for me. I think I was um, always really height attuned and sensitive to inequality um, by virtue of maybe being a person of color in this country. When we were growing up, 85% of the country was white and Christian. And so when, and me growing up in a town like Riverside and there just weren't a lot of kids who looked like me, I was sensitive to it from the get. Like I was aware that I didn't look like everyone else. And all the movies that I loved, Back to the Future and um, Rocky, like all these movies that I loved, I love movies. And the books that I would read, all the media that I would consume, even most of the skate videos that I would watch, there weren't people who looked like me. 
And um, that representation became something that I really glommed onto. And I told myself, when I grow up, I want to be that guy for kids who look like me, that are growing up and are like, there's no one like me out there. I had Daewon Song, Gideon Choi, and then this, I don't even like the Smashing Pumpkins, but they had a bass player named James Eha. He was a Japanese American guy. These were like my three people in the world growing up that I was just like, they're kind of cool. Like, I guess I, I want to be like them. And now, fortunately, we live in this place where like most of the YouTube personalities are actually Asian American. So there's a, like, a lot more representation. But I think that's why I was always sensitive to inequality. And secondarily, I think, and I know this sounds kind of like idealistic, but I think as artists and designers, we're constantly like trying to tweak the world to make it better, right? Like we're trying to like smoothen out lines. And if a line is straight, then we're trying to break it. Like we're just constantly like trying to like even stuff out. And for me, inequality, by virtue of what it's the name, inequality, like something is imbalanced that I need to feel like I need to just flatten out. And so it just didn't stop with race for me. It, it, it entered into like gender, right? Like misogyny and feminism and uh, just other human rights, civil rights issues that I was just always drawn to. That's why I think I was drawn to skateboarding too. You know, like skateboarding to me was in a way of, you know, being with the underdogs, people that didn't have the majority voice. Like skateboarding was not a sport, right? Like we were not considered in, like we're gonna be in the Olympics? Like back then, like no, you were counted out. No one wanted to hear from you. Same in punk, like you were counted out. Like no one wanted, you were the black sheep, right? Out of step, like we're, we're, over, we're the black, like we're literally the sheep of color, right? And here's the mob of like the majority over here. And so it was always just about like putting on the minority. It wasn't just like a race thing or a gender thing. It was just any minority, I'm down for you. Um, I'm always down for the underdog. Every movie, every fight, I love MMA. Like I'll always go for the underdog because there's enough people shooting for the mainstream and the, over, and the top dog. And so I'm just like, I'm just always with the guy that's never gonna make it. That's why when, you know, a street war got more and more mainstream, it's like, that level of mainstream streetwear is not as interesting to me because I'm like, oh, everyone's into that. I'm like, but what about this brand over here? You know, like, check out this brand. Like, um, I was just looking at, um, like, this brand called Grits out of Houston. And, uh, you know, it's just one guy. He runs it. It's a small brand. And I'm like, I love that brand. Like, let's talk more about that brand. Like, how do we get more representation for him? Um, so that's really what it's about. You know, I went to law school for that reason, too. That was I didn't finish my law school story, but... I went to law school also just for a lot of um, public interest and, and, and social justice uh, type causes. And it's funny, like last night I was talking, I have an older brother and a younger brother. And my parents did not raise us to be like these social justice warrior activist guys at all. But for whatever reason, my younger brother's like been living that life. You know, he went on missions trips like throughout China and he's just always like down for the people. He's um, uh, applying to be a public defender right now. My father-in-law, uh, my wife's dad, was basically the public defender of LA, who's the APD for many years. Um, and then my older brother is, um, he's a pastor out in Cambridge, and he has the most diverse church. They did a big story on him in the Boston, on the Boston News Channel yesterday about how he's bridging racial divides and talking about racial issues within his community. And so, for whatever reason, we were all very sensitive to it. We're just built like this. Um, 
I don't know. My grandfather, I learned later in life, was a political dissident and was in jail for most of his life, too. So I just always, I don't know. As Koreans, we're kind of built pretty angry. Like, we just have, like, this, there's this thing in, in, in it's, you can Wikipedia, it's called Han, H-A-N. And Koreans, it's, like, maybe a mythological thing, but it's this idea that we don't know how to, like, manage or navigate our emotions very well. So it comes out as, like, anger and rage, or it comes out very passionately in arts and creativity, or both. But we're very passionate people. Like, we don't know how to just express ourselves normally. Like, we bottle everything up, which is just me, and then it just vomits everything. Like, for me, the hundreds, it's, like, all my, like, design vomit. <laughs> It's like, here you go, Here's, here, buy all my vomit. Yeah, know? you really just sold that. <laughs> yeah, everyone's just like, oh, clicking off now. But um, maybe that's what it is. I don't know why we are built like this, but I also feel in this day and age especially to be apolitical is a privilege. And I don't think to be political means you're for Trump or you're against Trump or like you're Black Lives Matter or anti-Black Lives Matter. That's not... I know that's what the media wants to show you as out there as being political, but political also, being an activist just means standing up for yourself and standing up for other people. That's all it is. And whatever that means to you, if it means, um, there's, a, there's a breadth of, of, of issues that relate to social justice and inequality. There's hundreds and hundreds of issues. It's not just gun reform. It's not just sustainability. There's so many things out there. So. Um, I always ask people to identify three causes in your life that you feel like are being misrepresented, unidentified, and especially if, not, not just, but especially if you are on the other side of where I stand. I have a lot of fans that came, over, came up to me over the last year and a half that are like, look, like you're always talking about how it's good to use your brand to speak up on social justice issues. What if I'm for Trump? What if I'm an NRA guy? What if I love my guns? Um, what if I actually don't really believe in gender-neutral bathrooms? I'm like, I, don't, I might not necessarily agree with you on a personal level, but it is just as important for you to exercise your voice too because your voice, this is what this country was built on, was everyone just being transparent and saying what they talked about. And if you tell me why you are against a gender-neutral bathroom, and I'll tell you why I think it might be the right thing to do, we can get closer and closer to the truth. We can actually get closer and closer to something happening, like progress, instead of us just getting more and more polarized and then we come at a stalemate. Yeah. Which is all that's gonna happen over the next few years, unfortunately, is that we are just gonna continue to get more polarized until something breaks. But one election's gonna go this way and then an election's gonna go this way out of revenge and we're just in this revenge culture instead of just, can we just talk about like, you know, you hate this but I love it can we talk about it and just relate on a human level? And it's okay for us to have completely different opinions on yeah. things. Like, I'm against white supremacy all the way, but if like that's your thing, you know, like, I don't hate you as a human being, I hate your ideas. Like, I don't think they're grounded ideas, I don't think they don't make sense to me, but like, we should talk and like, treat each other as humans and not kill each other and not try to like, beat each other up. Like, can we just talk about that for a second? Um, the more that can happen, the better. And so uh, I don't think there's a lot of social justice speak out there in streetwear. Streetwear is like very materialistic. We're in this culture right now of pursuing and achieving as much wealth as possible. 
And streetwear is a big proponent of that because of just how hip hop culture is also. It's very, uh, it's chasing material things. It's, it wasn't always that way with hip hop, but it is now. So streetwear models that too. It's about like how expensive your clothes are, how rare and expensive your sneakers are. And so I just want to try to provide as much of an alternative opinion as possible of streetwear, of like streetwear is also about communication, diversity, inclusivity. Uh, streetwear is also about representation of, of, of different ideas, people, voices, ideologies. Like that's a big part of streetwear too. Let's not forget that. Let's communicate, uh, not just buy stuff. Um, I f I'm like one of the only guys out there doing it and I feel like sometimes I'm the guy in the corner that everyone's like, dude, what a nut and like I can't take this anymore, but that's okay. Again, like I don't do it because I need anyone's validation. I do it because I just feel like it's what's right to do for me. Yeah, I, I agree and I, I appreciate it. I like reading your, your posts and- Thanks. Yeah, and- um, And I'm, it, always, I'm always, sorry to interrupt, but I'm always very open to being proven wrong. All the time I get proven wrong. I'll say something on social media and people will fight me on it in the DMs or friends will come up to me and be like, you know what, I just don't agree. And I'll be like, really, why? And we'll talk about it, I'll be like, wow, I think you're right. You know, like that's human. It's in being fluid in our opinions. Like my opinions change with new information, Yeah. right? Like just inform me. Like when I'm going out there on a, my soapbox and saying how I feel, I'm not saying like I'm absolutely right. I'm saying this is how I feel right now. Prove me wrong. Like, I'm putting that out there for you to discuss, not because I'm trying to, I'm not a preacher up here telling you this is what the truth is. I'm saying, this is what I think. Can you, like, debate this with me? Like, can you correct me on that? Because I know I can't be completely right, but I think I'm getting closer. Just help me get to the right place. Um, that's how we should be using social media. Unfortunately, most people don't. It's just, everyone's very angry. Um, and it's understandable why everyone's very angry because no one feels like every both sides if there if we want to split everything in two sides Which isn't just two sides, but let's just let's just say all sides just feel like they're not being heard or considered And that makes people angry. I know what that's like as a minority now everyone feels like a minority Yeah, white men too, right? Like white men feel the same way like Oh my god, like this sucks. Why does everyone hate me and everyone thinks that like I didn't do that it's like, yeah, we all feel like that now. Like, it's all, we're all in a pretty shitty place, you know? It's not fun. But um, I just think the more we can talk to each other and not, like, try to hate each other, it's better. Yeah, and I think that social media, you know, largely is, like, it's a check-me-out platform. Mm -hmm. And I think when anyone posts, you know, hey, check this out, or listen to what I learned, or... You know, I find this interesting or whatever. If there's any type of real content there, it's always exciting because, you know, I find that usually when you're flicking through, it's like, you know, this yeah. is what everyone's up to, but there's not a lot of substance to it, you know? Yes. You know, and I, I, and I think that sometimes too much substance is exhausting as well. Mm. Sometimes you just want to look at stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know? yeah. you don't want to read stories. Yeah. But that's awesome because you have the freedom to see a long... Mm -hmm. a long caption and you can skip over it and just be like I can imagine what that's about today because I'm just not really into getting into it mm -hmm. you know but I think that offering something different and you do that I've been trying to do it because I feel like your social posts of thinking of people besides yourself and talking about and telling these stories like when you went to down the, what's the 395 it's like Bishop or somewhere where you went and oh the Manzanara camp Manzanara camp yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
What town is that in again? It's in, it's Manzanar. It's not really a town. They, but it's, it's off the 395. Off the, off the 395. Okay. So I didn't know that story and just reading your stories, I was going back and reading every bit of it all, you know, and I just found it really fascinating that that's what you chose to do. A lot of people would be like, you know, and your position would be like, oh, you know, I'm killing it at life and I have all this stuff. Here's all my stuff. Check it out. Don't you wish you had it? You yes. know, and I think yeah. that in the contrast of that, I really appreciated it. And I know you don't like praise and I'm not trying to give you, <laughs> I'm not trying to give you too much. I'm just trying to say that I appreciate it. And if, if that's only to encourage From you, it's, it if, feels good. Well, if so. that's only to encourage you to do it more, <laughs> then, yes. then awesome. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, this brings me to my next question. Hmm. So you've done the hundreds for 15 years and you've, you know, I'm sure your roles have changed, but you've pretty much been the creative lead, right, for yes. the brand. And do you see doing this for the next five to 10 to 15 is like, mm. is potentially selling the company and starting something different that's small again? Because, you know, when I, when things got really big for me, I just wished I was back at the beginning. Yeah. The, the kids who start streetwear brands today um, it's really popular or maybe it's like the main thing to do is to start these quick brands that you build for a few years and you just dump it and you start another one. And, but for Ben and I, we always wanted to kind of be like Levi's. Like we started, we started the company because we we're like, we want to do this forever. Like this is like all we're good at. So we're just going to do it as long as we can. I was like, I want my great grandkids working for it. Like I want to just be a heritage brand. Um, only 15 years in, you know, we have a long way to go to be like 100 years. But so in that in that vein of thought, like we really just wanted to keep the hundreds around for as long as possible. I hope I'm involved for as long as possible. So there's no exit strategy. There's no exit strategy. No, there's no exit strategy. There's just like more entrance strategies for me to get into other types of yeah. storytelling vehicles. But, um, you know, I'm not like really a a, a business person like I'm an entrepreneur in that in the sense of like I'm a creative person who has ideas of things that like I want to pursue I'm not like a really good I'm not like a shrewd business guy you know uh, Ben's the business guy if anything and I just you know I like just making stuff and I like writing stories so as yeah, long as I, I think that you kind of made it pretty clear that the relationship with Ben was very crucial to the success of yes. the hundreds do you do you want to expand on that at all yeah it uh, I if I didn't have Ben um, around um, this really just would have been my art project and to this day I probably would have a nine-to-five job somewhere doing something and this would just be a fun project. Maybe I'd make a couple t-shirts here and there. But Ben was the guy who came along who was like, no, we can make money. I know how to make money selling stuff. Like, this isn't just for fun. Like, have you ever considered maybe it could be a career opportunity? And I'm like, no. You know, everything I've ever learned is you can't make a living making art. And he's just like, I think we can do it. That little, I know it just sounds like such a subtle, like minimal thing that happened. But when you convince yourself for so many years, you know, we were 23 years old, 23 years, you've convinced and trained yourself into believing this is not possible. And for one person to come along to be like, no, it is very possible. I'll show you how. And then I had some other events happen in my life where people started allowing me to allow myself 
to consider the possibility that I can make a living off of my dreams. I never had that. It's, and, and maybe that, you know, maybe that's why I'm so much about trying to be that for kids and inspiring them, but also like informing and educating them to learn how to follow their dreams because I never had that. Like, again, as far as like representation goes, like there wasn't anyone that even looked like me in the apparel space. Action sports wasn't really a thing, but even like the surf brands and the skate brands at the time, like the owners didn't look like me or didn't have backgrounds like me. And so I was never told that this could be a thing, you know, like my career counselor in high school was like, you are like you do these weird rudimentary tests and it was like you're best suited to be a lithographer i still don't know what a lithographer is you know i i I have no idea what that is but my career counselor was like you're good at drawing you'll be a lithographer and i'm like what like what is Is that that? calligraphy i have no idea what it is it's probably (laughs) whatever you googled it yet you like just not knowing maybe i turned maybe a lithographer is a streetwear designer and i ended up actually being a lithographer (laughs) i I don't know i just remember just being like so angry and going like oh my god that i'm doomed like the only skill sets that i have and the things that i care about are dead ends skateboarding punk rock drawing cartoons, um, writing short stories. These are all dead ends. And so when someone was just like, no, no, these aren't dead ends. Like these are ways to actually build a career path. Uh, You know, it's crazy. Like it just takes one person to say like, you can do it. And uh, I had a, there's a, there's a really long story, which I've told a few times about my research attorney, Abe, uh, my first year after law school when I met Ben and we're starting to talk about the project and I worked for this attorney for the entire summer and he was dying of cancer and he was 40 and on the last day he told me um, hey look you're one of the best uh, interns we've ever had uh, that he had ever had in all his time of doing it and uh, he's just like but you should never be an attorney and I was like but you just said I, I'm one of the best he's just like yeah but your heart's not in it it's like every day when we go to lunch, all you talk about is this thing called the hundreds. You bring your black book around and you have you show me all your designs and your, I was building our website at the time. So like my HTML coding and all this stuff that I would just like, I would break it out of lunchtime and be showing them like, look at this t-shirt, isn't it cool? And he was just like, this is all you care about. And I'm like, no, I care about like legal stuff. I'm good at it. And he's just like, you're really good at it, but it's not where your heart is. And he's like, one day you're gonna be like me. You're gonna be 40 years old and you could be dying of cancer. And are you gonna be okay with knowing that you spent your entire life working on something that you really didn't care much about? He's like, you're gonna have all the money, you're gonna have all the success and everything, but like, you could be 40 and dying. Like, do you wanna spend your entire life doing that? And it was the first time, that was like another kind of turn of the knob where someone said, just own it. Like, you want to be a designer, you wanna, create a clothing company, you want to pursue your art, allow yourself to do that. Like, every, I know everyone's told you no, but no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Like, no one saw the internet coming. No one saw, like, every day now we're living in the space where, like, every day it's, like, blowing people's minds. Like, oh, my God, I never knew, like, we'd have a black president. We had eight years. Oh, my God, I never expected we'd have a reality star as a president. We're in it now. 
I'd never, you know, cryptocurrency, where the hell did that come from? Like, oh my God, whole new opportunity. So like, nobody knows. All the experts are wrong all over, we're living in, it's like, it's, it's volatile, but it's so cool because every rule is wrong, every rule is being broken, all the systems are crashing, all, this, all the paradigms, everything is wrong and backwards, and so nobody knows. Like, I have no idea if the hundreds is gonna be around next year or even tomorrow. Like, everything can change. Like, people's careers are just being pulled out from under them over scandals and controversies. Like, people are revolting and toppling regimes. Like, it's happening. Like, you have, like, if, if people have been telling you your whole life, you cannot do it. There's no way. Look at all the reasons. There's no no one ever that has ever looked like you has been in the space. You're a woman. There's no like there's no women in skateboarding. There's no men that have been in this space. Blah blah blah. They're wrong. Like look at the Olympians this year in in the Winter Olympics. Like all the ice skaters were Asian American. That is something that I would have never had imagined. You know, like they're all Asian Americans doing ice skating. Like we grew up with like Scott Hamilton and you know, uh, Mary Lou Retton, you know, and I'm like, so I never thought like, oh, I could be an ice skater. And you know how many Asian kids are watching that going like, I'm gonna get into ice skating. Then like Chloe Kim's like owning the half pipe. It's like, what? Like when I snowboarded all throughout the nineties, there was like two Asian kids on the mountain. It was like me and like Steve Aoki, you know, like there was like no snowboarding Asian Americans. <laughs> and now like Chloe Kim has the gold medal, like, like by a mile, she just wins the whole thing. It's crazy, man. Like everybody's wrong. You're right, do it, you'll figure it out. If you, it might not be, this is the other thing too, is like you might have this idea of what you wanna do. I really wanna be a streetwear designer, I really wanna be a streetwear designer, but everyone's telling me it's not gonna work, no one believes in it. Just do it, man. Like you actually might not make it as a streetwear designer, but it will take you to where you're supposed to go. You know, like I, I always say like, I don't know what I'm gonna be when I grow up. Like I'm still trying to figure it out. Like I'm a streetwear designer now, but I have no idea where it's gonna take me eventually. Maybe that's, you know, I die at a hundred years old, hopefully. And I'm like, all I ever did on my tombstone, he was a streetwear designer. He drew that cartoon bomb thing, cool. Maybe that's all it is. And if that's what it is, great. Like I'm very proud of it. But I also, I think that it is just one of the many things that are gonna come along the way. So if you wanna be a streetwear designer now, be a streetwear designer now. And if in a year from now you're like, this is not for me, but I'm really into cooking and I wanna go to culinary school, go to culinary school. Like I've met so many chefs that were like, dude, I grew up reading your blog and it inspired me to become a chef. And I'm like, what? Like I'm a streetwear designer, it tells you how to build streetwear brand. Yeah, I tried, but after a few years I realized it wasn't really for me, but then I met my friend who like was a chef and he got me into cooking and then I met my wife and she said, you cook well and so I went to culinary school and now I own a restaurant. It's like sick, like do whatever it is you wanna do, it will get you to where you wanna go. As long as you're just motivated and you work hard at it, like you'll get to somewhere that you wanna be. I really, I really believe it, but I, don't listen to anyone else, they're wrong. I couldn't agree more. Right? Well, yeah, right. <clears throat> yeah. Well, thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Jamie. I that appreciate awesome. it. It was awesome. Yeah.